Hey, 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 welcome to the show. This is Michael Blanc. I'm your host of the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, and I'm super excited that you're here today. Today, we want to talk all about SEC regulations, but very specifically in ways that helps you basically find more investors online as well. Before we get started, I want to make sure that you guys are aware that Dealmaker Live tickets are in sale. DealmakerLiveEvent.com is where you can get those tickets. It's the biggest multifamily event of the year. It'll be in Dallas, like it, where it was last time. And we have a lot of big hitters already confirmed to speak there. People you would recognize like Neil Bawa, Dan Hanford, Adam Adams. I also got news that Brandon Turner will be here from Bigger Pockets. He doesn't like to leave uh, the big island of Hawaii, but he will be there for Dealmaker Live. But also, very importantly, this is about you know, real people doing real deals. So you're going to hear from people that uh, you may not have recognized. These are people who have done their first deals because I'm all about the first deal. How do they do it? And people who have recently quit their jobs, how do they do it as well? So it's all about financial freedom with real estate. It may not be in a way you think, which is single family houses, but in fact, it is with apartment buildings, which is where the vast majority of full-time investors use apartment buildings to become financial free. That's all DealMaker Live, DealMakerLiveEvent.com to grab your tickets and they're going fast. We've capped them at only 500, which is what we had last year. So they will most certainly sell out. So head over there right now to grab them. So here's what we're going to cover on today's episode. We have here to help us with some of these big, hairy questions. I want to know how can we legally market online and social media to find new investors so we can expand our database? How do you legally do that? Um, I also asked uh, this particular person, how do we defer our taxes in a syndication, this 1031 exchange, can you do it? And if so, how? Because uh, you know, we're, a lot of us are starting to get ready and, and selling some property. And also, if you're buying stuff right now, you have to make sure that you construct the entity correctly so that five, six, seven years from down the road, you can actually do that. So to help us with this is, is going to be the, the law firm that did the reggae for Grant Cardone. That's right. Uh, no one else, uh, but uh, Gene Trowbridge and his firm did the reggae for Grant Cardone, and they are super experienced in there. And that's what we're going to get to in the show. Show, so stay tuned and hey, let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. All right, before we get into the show with uh, Gene Trowbridge here, let me ask you something. Let me know exactly what you're doing right now as you're watching and listening to this episode. So this this uh, podcast airs on iTunes in your favorite podcast player, but it's also on YouTube. So the same video, you can watch me and the guest actually going back and forth on YouTube and a great way to gauge us in comments as well. So if you're on YouTube, that's great. If you want this on the go, then head over and download the, uh, the podcast and vice versa as well. The advantage of YouTube, of course, is that we can engage. You can ask questions and comments. So head over to YouTube to watch this, this interview live as well. And I'd like to know just what are you doing right now when you're watching these podcasts or this YouTube? Are you in the gym? And if you're driving, maybe you're listening. You shouldn't be watching maybe while you're driving. But let me know on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook. So the handle is the Michael Blanc on all three channels. Let me know what you're doing right now. All right. And make, make sure you stay safe while I'm doing that. But I'm, I'm curious to see how people are listening to our podcast or watching it on YouTube. All right. So on to our show here. We have Gene Trowbridge. He's a managing partner of Trowbridge Sidoti. And that law firm has been around for a long time. Uh, Gene's got a, more than a few gray hairs, been doing this a long time. They concentrate on syndications and crowdfunding. And together with his partner, Jillian Sidoti, they've done well over $1.5 
billion dollars of equity raised. And in fact, for some of their crowdfunding clients and reggae clients like Grant Cardone, that's right, they did the reggae for Grant Cardone. They've actually been involved in, in raising parts of the equity as well. So they do a lot of sophisticated transactions each and every month. And so when it comes to real estate syndications and crowdfunding, Gene knows what he's talking about. So in this episode, we're going to go deep on two things, essentially. How do we, how can we raise money legally online and in social media? And how do we set up our entities to basically be able to tax defer these things? And what do we have to pay attention to up front? and as we exit. And also, he's giving away a copy of his free book for our listeners and viewers as well. So let's get right into the interview with Gene Trowbridge. Here we go. Gene, welcome to the show today. Hey, thank you, Michael. Nice to be with you. It's uh, it was great hanging out with you a little bit, getting to know you a little bit more in some events. And you know, I had it's been a while since we had an SEC attorney on the show, and you certainly are very qualified. And there's a few questions on my mind that I wanted to ask you today, and I know you are more prepared to answer them. But one of the things that's very relevant to to me as well as so many other people is. I know I need to get find more investors. And the question is, how do you do that in an age of social media, online marketing? You know, everyone's doing Facebook and social media and SEO and all kind of stuff. It's all great, but you can't just legally go out and start advertising and finding investors. And so there's a kind of a, 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 a illegal way to do it and, and, a, and a more legal way to do it. And it can be done, but you have to really pay attention to some of the details. Can you help guide us with doing that legally? Sure, sure. There are two ways that you can flat out advertise. And that let's talk about that first. You can do a uh, Regulation A, Regulation A+, plus, that some of your listeners will know some of the people who are doing Reg A's and they're advertising on the... Uh, on all their social well, let's media. Well, like Grant Cardone. We had him on yeah. a show recently. I know you guys have done work for Grant Cardone. Yeah, so we, there's Grant and he's pounding the, you know, right. and that, so that's a, that's a reggae. That's a reggae. And yes, we okay. do do his reggae legal work. And he came to us because he wants to stand up in front of uh, 10, 15,000 people and all through his social media and say, invest with me. Okay. And that works with a Reg A plus, uh, I'm going to use the word permit. It's not really a permit, but that's what everyone understands. A permit from the SEC to go out and raise money that way. We have no requirements about whether you're accredited, you're sophisticated, non-accredited. You can just take everyone. The simple rule is on uh, suitability. Generally, we want someone who has a net worth of $35,000 and doesn't invest more than 10% of their net worth. So you can see it's a huge game. Now, before everyone calls you and says, I want a reggae, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's couch that a little bit because it takes a long time and costs a lot of money to get this done. Can you just put this in perspective before people start calling 1-800-CALL-GENE to set up their reggae? Fifty dollars to $100,000, four to six months. Right. So I'm kind of talking about, I was thinking about how long did it take us to get the permit for grant? And it, it, it really is, sometimes it's even longer than that if you're more avant-garde about what you're going to do, because the SEC is going to read every word and uh, approve it. And so that's not for everyone. It's for someone who has a huge database, a huge social network, or is standing up in front of people and they don't want to be restricted, so they just use Reg A. For most of us, the other way you can advertise, and as I said, there are only two in the private space, is Regulation D, Rule 506C. 
And 506C says you can do anything you want. You stand up in front of all the people, do social media, do anything you want, hot air balloons. Uh, doesn't make any difference what you do as long as you limit your investors to investors who are accredited. Right. And so that's yeah. the requirement. You raise as much money as you want, as many people and advertise, there's no restriction, but you have to take steps to be reasonably assured that everyone's accredited. Yeah. And I think a lot of listeners are already kind of familiar with that. The bigger question is, before we get into the alternative, which is 506B, why don't more syndicators do 506C? Do well, that's think? a good question because the, the latest word out from the SEC is about 90% of the money that's raised in the private placement market, about $1.8 under Reg D, is 506B. So there's only 10% raved in 506C. And I have a couple of reasons I've found out for that. Number one, all of our experienced, sophisticated sponsors actually have all the investors they need. They don't need more investors. They don't want to take a risk of uh, trying to raise money from people that they don't know who will upset the apple cart. They, they just don't need it. Secondly, if I've been going along doing um, regulation 506B and you know, Michael, there's just the check the box. Are you accredited? All the accredited investor has to do is check the box because we know them. So if you came to me and said, Gene, invest in this and you give me the subscription agreement and I check the box that I'm accredited, you should know me well enough to know if that makes sense. Okay. You don't really have to police it. Whatever I say goes, but you should know. In advertising, you don't know. So they make you do some third-party verifications. And Michael, a lot of these credit investors who've been investing with a particular sponsor for a while don't want to do that third-party accreditation. Michael, why can't we just do it the way we did it before? Why can't I just check the box? Yeah, and, I've, you know, Michael, I do some a lot of, of 506Bs where mm -hmm. the sponsor self-imposes limitation of only credited investors. Only accredited investors can invest, and so they just check the box. They don't need to advertise, but they want to keep it to accredited. So that's another thing that happens. Yeah, the verification is definitely one. The other thing I've heard is that it, uh, if you go with a 506C, you can only take accredited investors. And, and a lot of people just don't have that a big enough of uh, investor pool. Uh, they're just glad to get someone who wants to invest the $50,000, whether they're accredited or not. Right. And so it, it limits the, the pool. What I've also found is that people who have really raised tens of millions of dollars sometimes now gravitate towards 506C because they do have a much larger pool of investors. And to them, it's more uh, important to have quality investors over quantity. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons we see it as well. But let's talk about 506B because it's typically something that most of us are, are using. And then with that, we know that there's accredited, non-accredited investors, but you have to be careful with how you take money from you know, 506B. Can you talk about kind of the different considerations there, especially with regards to when we're doing stuff online and we're bringing in a, a complete stranger, you know, at what point can we, you know, what do we have to do to be able to present them with a deal? I think that's where we're going to mm -hmm. get to right now. Well, I could give you good legal advice about bringing in a complete stranger into your deal, and it's don't do that. Okay, right. that's, that's, the legal, that's the legal advice there. The simple rule is no offer can be presented through advertising or general solicitation. That's the rule. So to defend yourself 
against that charge. And that's really what it's all about. We need to make sure that if we're ever charged in, for advertising in a 506B, which will blow our exemption, which means we should have gone to the SEC for full registration, we need to counter that charge. And there are um, a couple of ways of doing that. The way I'm going to talk about today is two words that work together, and it's pre-existing and substantive. So those are the two words we need to do. So if you have a pre-existing in relationship with an investor, you can defend yourself against advertising your offering. You're not advertising your offering. You're offering investors the opportunity to invest with you in an opportunity that you found. And you knew these investors before your offering started. In our firm, we take the position that at an LOI, we've not started an offering because a lot of things can happen in an LOI. You're just negotiating. It may never come to fruition. Even the purchase and sale agreement, I don't believe, is the beginning of an offering because with the purchase and sale agreement, I could decide to buy the property. I could decide to wholesale the property. I could decide a number of things. But when I sign a fee agreement with an attorney, I'm thinking that pretty much clearly defines the start of an offering. Not when the PPM is ready, not when you give the documents to anyone, but it's when you sign the fee agreement. And I, I know that from the days I raised money using the broker-dealer network. The broker-dealer network always felt that an offering started when they signed a contract with me to do the due diligence. Because once they start the due diligence, if everything comes right, it moves right to an offer. So I use uh, fee agreement as the time that uh, uh, we need to freeze our database. You think about your database, you're adding people, you're adding people, you're adding people, and all of a sudden you sign a fee agreement, freeze that database. That's really helpful. Uh, that's really helpful, uh, Gene, to, to define that moment in time. And it's hard to pin down attorneys. And I, I can't believe I was able to pin you down with a time frame. So that's fantastic. So that's kind of, in your opinion, the time when an offering starts and you used to call, talk about freezing your database, meaning if I translate this, that means that uh, anyone you meet from that point forward cannot see that opportunity. You're frozen mm -hmm. that database. Now, the you next question You can put them in the database, though, Michael. Uh, no, right. Always. So that, that brings up... That <laughs> always put him in the database. Right. So that brings up the next question, which is, okay, I, I now have an offering and now I'm looking through my database and not every name in the database is created equal, right? Uh, and so the question is, which people in my database can I present that offering to? What has had to happen to create a, what you call pre-existing substantive relationship where I can check the box going, yes, this person meets that criteria and I can mm -hmm. show them that deal and maybe this one does not. Well, the key is that pre-existing and substantive are in the same sentence. <laughs> pre-existing and substantive, not pre-existing, and then I'll get to the substantive relationship when I'm showing them the offering. When you freeze the database, you need to know with whom you have the substantive relationship. And there's no bright line on that, Michael. It's just a, uh, a relationship where the investor along with uh, maybe their um, advisor, their CPA or whatever, has enough information from you to determine that uh, they'd like to do business with you, 
that uh, when they see an offering from you, they can analyze it and decide if the risk profile is right for them. And it's just more than, and you and I know this because we see it all the time, it's just more than collecting a business card and then putting that information in your database. That's not substantive at all. Now, there are a lot of old wives' tales, the three-touch rule, the 30-day rule, and all those things are born out of no action letters that the SEC wrote to certain people who explained certain fact patterns. And the SEC said, well, yes, if in fact that's what you do, uh, you'll be okay. But it's not a blanket rule. Unless you knew what that person or that company did, you, you wouldn't know what their three touches were. And it's not, you know, breakfast in the morning, lunch and dinner, Michael. That, although it could be, there's nothing that says you couldn't develop a substantive relationship with someone if you spent the whole day with them and maybe half of the day. It's nebulous, but it's not just because you're in the database. Yeah, that is that is correct. We were certainly just just by downloading some kind of special report I might have is not a substantive pre-existing relationship. Now, we as syndicators hang quite a few hats on this uh, no action letter that you refer to <laughs> because it's like the one piece that you know we actually have. And so uh, now I'm having trouble pinning you down on a particular thing, which is which is fine. So it is not a hard and fast rule that says, hey, here's the exact four things you need to create a substantive pre-existing relationship. However, we do know from this no action letter that there are, are certain interactions that increase the probability of defending oneself against such accusations of basically not having a pre-existing relationship. For example, in our world, we want to make sure that we send them at least a few uh, emails. And But the thing that's important for us is that we connect them by phone because we feel like connecting them by phone they have a chance to ask us questions. We can ask them questions. And some people, uh, we can say, hey, look, you know, you're investing 80% of your net worth. It's probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so now we can say, my gosh, we've, oh, oh, and then and then you're adding the 30-day rule to that, right? And you add it all together and you're like, man, I'm feeling pretty good about creating substantive pre-existing relationships. But like you said, it could be more or it could be less. There's no 30-day rule. <laughs> There was, a 30 the day, there was a 30-day rule that came out of a no-action letter uh, granted to IPO Net many, many years ago. And, and what, what they were doing is they were online. They were building um, a database uh, by attracting people to the generic message that they had. People would sign a questionnaire, would get inside of the website would be added to the database and to prevent being accused of advertising they put a self well actually what they did is they put us a deal says you're not going to be able to invest in anything we're offering today you have to wait till the next one that's cool another company came out called technology lamp technology and said we only have one offering it's going to be there for three years we can't do what IPO Net does, but we're going to put a self-imposed 30-day time frame. From the time you come in to the database, uh, you can't invest with us for 30 days. And in 30 days, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do to build this relationship. But there's no 30-day rule. You know, you get your, you get your business card on March 2nd and on April 3rd. Can you sell these people something if you've never talked to them? No. 
You can't. Yeah. I mean, the lesson here is you can't just get someone on a business card or from a, something that they download and show them a deal. You know, and, and everyone no. everyone literally agrees that is that is totally <clears throat> illegal. You can't do that. Right. And and exactly what you do from that point on is a little hazy. But in my opinion, the more you do with a particular person that comes into your world, the more interactions you have, the more defensible it is. And, and in my opinion, it also serves the investor and you a lot more mm-hmm. because some investors you don't want uh, to have as an investor. And it actually serves you to know those investors and I think also to the investor to make sure there's a high degree of compatibility uh, with the what they're looking for and what you're offering as well. Any yeah, other closing actually, thoughts on that one, Gene? Yeah, there are actually two rules. The one rule is you, um, you can't uh, uh, make an offer to sell through solicitation or advertising if you're doing a 506B. That's not how your offer can be made. And number two, you have to have a record keeping system. So if you are asked, you can prove that the investor's relationship was pre-existing. So in many, many cases, the SEC has agreed with an introductory questionnaire. I call it a pre-qualification questionnaire that we give all of our clients. And whenever they meet someone, they email it to them. I don't know if they walk around with a pad of pre-qualification questionnaires that they rip off and give to people at uh, RIA meetings, but they could. And then you get the questionnaire back. Two things. The questionnaire is a sales pitch. If I don't give you the questionnaire back, I'm just not that into you, okay? And number two, the questionnaire is signed and dated by the potential client, which just helps establish the pre-existing relationship. I love that. All right, guys. I hope you guys uh, found that found that useful to listen to this uh, or watching this on YouTube. Uh, great advice from Gene. Gene, I want to kind of pivot a little bit to another question. And I know this is something that you uh, are somewhat passionate about as well, talking about tax-deferred strategies from a legal perspective. And we all of us, many of us know the, this uh, thing called a 1031 exchange, which allows us to kick the tax can down the road, if, if you will, which is super, except for the fact that it's really difficult to do in a syndication. Meaning the complication is that if I have a syndication and I want to sell and not all of my limited partners want to do a 1031 exchange, I'm kind of stuck. And now I have to pay taxes because I can't convince everybody else to come along with me. Mm -hmm. Now, is there a way to do a tax deferred exchange in a syndication? If so, how? Sure. I think we need to look at two moments in time. The first moment of time is coming into an offering with your 1031 deferred money. And the problem there is when you invest in an LLC, you're investing in um, personal property. It's not real estate because you don't get a deed. You had a deed, you sold the property, the money is with the accommodator, and now you're going to invest and get 10% interest in an LLC. That's not like kind, so that, that blows. You need to go from deed to deed. So, and I get this every month, we do one or two of these deals I'm going to explain where an investor comes in with a lot of money, $500 million sitting with an accommodator and wants to invest in someone's deal and wants to get tax deferral. The only way you can do that is that investor becomes a tenant in common in this new ownership structure. If I'm the syndicator, I'm going to raise the other million from another bunch of investors in an LLC, and that's a tenant in common. And Michael Blank is the million-dollar investor, and he's a tenant in common. And we go ahead and we run the property as tenants in common. And probably over and beyond what we need to do here, the problem with that is that 
partnership interests don't qualify for a 1031 exchange. It's one of the named exclusions. So we have to be careful when you and I, in our two tenants in common, try to run this property. And typically where I run into trouble is my syndicator, I would like to get over and above the preferred return that you're gonna get, and I'd like to get fees on your share, and I'd like to make all the decisions. Michael? Ideally, that would be great. That'd be great. Can't do that because that's a partnership. <laughs> so, yeah. Michael, you're going to get, in our example, a 50% deed. I'm going to get 50% deed. You get your 50% of the cash. Uh, we don't participate in it at all. There's no such thing as a preferred return. It's just split. And then I make all my money from my syndication, which is fine. But then when we go to make a decisions, uh, you have a 50% vote and we have a 50% vote. So you can imagine if we've got 25 Michaels out there, it's going to be hard to make a decision, right? So right. it can be done correctly. Now, the second point of time is we didn't start with that as a problem. We started with a full syndication, all the investors, Michael. And now it's this is what's happening. Anyone who's invested since, what, 2012 or 2013 is coming up on their six or seven year hold and they got a lot of gain. So the group would like to exchange. But by God, Michael, seven years ago, I was young enough to invest in a seven to 10 year hold, but today I'm not. Hmm. So I want my money. And, and so what you do, and it's relatively simple, when you interview your investors, I don't know if your operating agreement, Michael, requires that you get their approval to sell or exchange, or if you can make the decision yourself, we'll have to look at the agreement. But in any way, you interview ahead of time and say, who is not going to go with us? I'm going to raise my hand. Let's say I'm the only guy. All right, Gene, here comes an offer on the property. We go to escrow and we open two escrows. We open an escrow for my money, okay? So when the closing takes place, the money that's gonna go to me goes into a separate account. And then the money that's gonna be used for an exchange goes to the exchange accommodator's account. The escrow sends me my check, I pay my taxes, fine. The other investors buy, in the same LLC, unless there's some problem without the lender, buys a new deed and we go forward. Simple, easy to do, but you need to have this interview ahead of time, Michael. Does it make sense? Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. So I think the, the only complicating factor is that you're using the same LLC to buy another project. And that probably makes sense if the majority of the limited partners want to move forward with it. If not, it's going to be an uphill battle potentially. But if you're short, let's say let's say 60% of the LPs decide to move forward and your 40 are on drop out, mm -hmm. uh, your operating agreement and could allow for bringing on new members sure. for that LLC. Sure. To round, what, to make up the shortfall. We're talking IRS here to start with. In order to do an exchange, the LLC has to acquire a property equal or greater in value and a loan equal or greater in value. And if in your example, 40% of the equity is gone, they might not be able to do that. So we might, we might be able to bring in new investors, beef up the equity in the deal and go forward. And then that's a CPA issue. How do you deal with the old investors and the new investors? Or we do a tenant in common. 
So talk about that. Yeah, so that, you that go was out option, and get option new, a, and you, you get yeah. the 40% new investors and put them in an LLC, and they just buy into the LLC, and that becomes a tenant in common, let's say, to 40% of the property. And so what you've done is you've exchanged into 60%, and your dollar of value and loans probably work. So you're balancing uh, by having two different uh, tenants in common. And if it's the same sponsor in both deals, the same sponsor, the sponsor will get fees and make money and everything. And it's just that now we've got two deeds, if you would, and uh, uh, decisions have to be unanimous, which brings up the issue of conflict. How can you run two LLCs and be sure that you represent both group of investors the same? I don't, I'm sure you can. Right, you sure you can, and it's it's a little more complicated. And explain to how the average syndicator might be able to open up a portion of their limited partnership shares to a ten thirty one exchange investor. And let's say, like, let's say, like in your case, it's uh, you know, thirty five percent. Someone comes in with a bunch of ten thirty one exchange money, and they want to place it with you as a limited partner. They can't. What is a syndic? They cannot. They can't because it's not real estate. They're buying percentage interest, which is a piece of paper. It's not a deed. You can exchange as long as you give up real estate and get real estate. Simple as that. You know, your first example, you did talk about how you can form two, almost two tenants in common to accommodate. Well, that's right. But the tenant in. in common is not an ownership of in the LLC. The deed would be Trowbridge Equity Group Fund 2, Michael Blank, 50% ownership, separate deeds. I have no control over you. You have no control over us. And there's a tenant in common agreement that's quite lengthy that tells you, well, in that situation, how do you run this damn property? Okay. And that's fine. It gets a little more complicated. And I think that one of the issues that I run into and I get some resistance on, there's a, a revenue procedure that was issued on this whole deal back away is 2002, actually. And the revenue procedure says, this is how you would do this. And we'd say, okay. But the revenue procedure says, you can't just do it the way we say, you have to ask us ahead of time. You follow all the rules and come to us and get a prior letter ruling. And if it's okay, we'll say, okay. Well, by then the seller's gone because the seller's not going to wait six or eight months for the IRS. So people just ignore that part of the rule and they just do it according to the recipe, if you would. But I have to put a disclaimer in the tenant in common agreement and says, you know, we're, we're supposed to ask for a private letter ruling. We're not going to. Mr. Investor, you're taking the risk that this, this isn't working. Go to your CPA and your tax attorney and satisfy yourself that what we've done is right. I mean, my sense is looking at this stuff, bringing in a 1031 exchange limited partner is complicated and expensive. And as a result, very few syndicators have actually done it <laughs> for that reason. Would you agree with that? Or, oh, or would I you say, right hey, now, it's something that we should, right we should now, really consider? Michael, right now I'm doing one a month. I'm doing one a month like that. But I will tell you that in counseling clients, I get many more requests than that. The ones that only go through are, are when that tenant in common is a, is a big hitter, a big slice of money. You're not going to do this for $200,000 investor. Right. You know? And it's one of the best questions I get is where the phone rings and here's someone who's, who's got a closing next week. 
And I know they do because I'm following everything in their client. They say, Gene, I've got a guy who's got some money in a 1031. And if I take his money in the deal, I fill up my offering and I'm great. How do I do that? I said, you can't. <laughs> you can't. You'd have to go to a tenant in common. And in that case, you have to restructure your whole deal, your PPM. It's a rescission offering. And what's interesting about that is on the third page of my PPM, I state in bold that you can't bring 1031 money into this LLC, but no one reads their documents, Michael. Well, of course, of course not. But so <laughs> the, the takeaway is if you're going to take a 1031 exchange uh, money, it's going to be much more of an equal partnership than the, yeah. uh, than a traditional general partner, limited partner. Is that, is that a, a better way to think It'll, of it? And it's okay. base, it's, it's uh, prorated. Yeah. It's That's prorated, right. but even if it's just a 1% owner, it's a veto mm. to a sale, a refinance, or a lease. That's, uh, any other closing uh, thoughts on uh, the 1031 exchange? I think it's going to con- it's going to continue. I did uh, a webinar at our firm, and I called it the tick epidemic, and, <laughs> and that's really what it is. It's going to continue as long as people are looking for ways to uh, defer tax without getting into the whole issue. The other side of this is opportunity zone. Now you can see this. What we've been talking about works if the client who wants tax referral has real estate to start with. But if they don't have real estate to start with, let's say they just sold an optical business and they have money, but they'd like to put it in real estate and defer some gain. Someone should call us and and have a discussion with us about how an opportunity zone might very well be the vehicle that they need. That is fantastic. So, Gene, I appreciate you coming on and talking about these things. There are things that are front of mind for a lot of uh, syndicators who are wondering about uh, online marketing and also about, hey, like you said, a lot of properties are becoming full cycle. And so the idea of, oh, my gosh, what do I do now? How do I exit? Do I pay tax? Do I not? Is on our mind. Now, I know you have a, a book out, actually, and you're making it available for, for free. Is that right? Are you sure about that? Uh, do I have a second chance? No. Yeah, <laughs> of course I'm making it available for free for anyone who is, uh, who is watching this, uh, the name of my book, it's a whole new business and it's a pretty good book on, uh, the real estate securities and syndication business. The reason it's called, it's a whole new business is it's really written for just real estate people who don't understand how complicated it is to put together a group of investors to buy a property. They think it's just real estate. No, we're moving you into the securities world, which is a whole new business. Yeah, it's, it's a great little, great little book. How are and, they going to uh, get that book, Michael? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll let you know. But I, I did look at the book and it does very comprehensive. This is not your, your nine-page ebook. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a full-blown book. And you talk about what entities to use, security laws that you need to know about, incomes, tax, and accounting issues, uh, how sponsors can legally get paid how to put a syndication together. And so uh, I appreciate you putting making this available because uh, normally it's not available for free and it's available to listeners only. It's at, uh, so here's how you get it. You go to the themichaelblank.com forward slash gene. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash gene. Now you do have to provide your email address, but you're getting Gene's book for free, okay? So this is a way that he can build his business as well. And I appreciate you really offering this fantastic book for free to our listeners and watchers. So you're welcome. Gene, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a really okay. pleasure to have you. Thank you, Michael. All right, several lessons that I took away from today's show for you note takers. Two things I really remember. One is you got to build a pre-existing substantive relationship with the people that you raise money from. 
All right, you can't just grab someone's business card and the next day show them a deal. You can't just have someone stumble on your website, download whatever you have or join your newsletter and then next day show them a deal. You're breaking, violating SEC regulations. There's a way to build pre-existing substantive relationships even online. In fact, I have a, a training I recorded a, a, a very short while ago. You can get it at themichaelblank.com forward slash platform because I teach you how you build an online platform in the right way so that you actually build a pre-existing substantive relationship, but in an automated fashion. So people just download your your special free report. And before you know it, they have scheduled a call with you and you're just taking calls. And there's an automation behind all that stuff that essentially turns cold leads into what I call deal-ready investors that satisfy the SEC regulations in a way that Gene talks about. If you want to know more about that and how to build an online thought leadership platform to raise millions of dollars essentially in days, go over to themichaelblank.com forward slash platform and, and just watch that. I think you'll find it really, really interesting if you're looking to scale your money raising as well. Lesson number two is 1031 exchanges. Okay, you got to set these things up right from the start so that you allow your investors to defer the taxes. And so Gene talked about some of the ways to do that. I would encourage you to reach out to your professional to kind of do that. And if you already have an entity that, that's in your way, there are ways, as Gene described, where you can actually move the partnership or the entity into a new asset. And there's a way of doing that and make sure that you work with your attorney and your, and your tax advisors on doing that. The good news is you can actually move a building into a 1031 exchange. Uh, legally without too much trouble. The trick always with 1031 change is the timing of the, the sale and the purchase of, of the asset, but there is a way to do that, which is very, very encouraging. So 1031 exchanges, make sure you think about the exit as well as, as always. Now, if you're interested in investing in multifamily syndications and you're new to this, I have another free report for you that talks about that. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash report. And it talks about, uh, it compares the stock market to real estate syndications and how they're different and why you might want to consider them. If you're interested in investing with us, then why don't you start the process of building a pre-existing substantive relationship with us at Nighthawk Equity by going to nighthawkequity.com and then clicking the join button, okay? And that way we'll uh, we'll set up a call with you and we'll see if investing in one of our future opportunities is uh, is a good idea for, for both of us, but we'd love to have a conversation with you. So head over to nighthawkequity.com and click the join the club button. We'd love to uh, have a conversation with you. All right, guys, hope you guys found that useful. I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.